A reading from the prophet Isaiah, beginning with the fifth chapter and the first verse. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteous, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning with the 21st chapter, the 33rd verse. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to Jesus, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning's gospel passage picks up right where we left off last week. We're at a point in Matthew's gospel where in just a matter of days, Jesus will be crucified. He's already entered into Jerusalem that final time with triumphant fanfare. However, after that, he went straight to the temple to do a little house cleaning, driving out the merchants and money changers and overturning their tables. So last week and today, we're looking at what happened the next day after his triumphant entry and cleansing of the temple. Last week, we saw the chief priests and elders confront Jesus and demand to know by what authority he's doing all these things. But they quickly shrank back as Jesus asked a question of his own, which exposed their resistance to actually live under God's authority and welcome the Lord's reign. Following that, Jesus drove his point home with his parable of the two sons who were asked by their father to go work in his vineyard. 
Well, today's passage picks up at the very next verse in Matthew 21, where we find Jesus still engaging. He's still in the same conversation with these religious leaders, and he's offering them yet another parable about a vineyard. Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. But when the season, season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And what transpires after this? It sounds like something out of a scene from a gangster movie. The tenants took the master's servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Then remarkably, the master sends more of his servants, only to have the same thing happen to them. And then finally, the master sends his son to get his fruit, saying, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now I would imagine that for quite a few of us, what stands out the most about this parable of the tenants, as it's called, is the very obvious allusion to Jesus's crucifixion in this parable. Which remember, at this point in Matthew's gospel, his crucifixion is only maybe three or four days away. In this parable, the vineyard owner, of course, represents God, who first sends his servants to the tenants whom the tenants mistreat and kill. These servants probably represent the prophets whom Israel had refused to listen to. The vineyard owner then sends more servants perhaps representing John the Baptist or other prophets, but the tenants do the same to them until finally the vineyard owner sends his only son to have the tenants take him outside of the vineyard to slay him, similar to how Jesus would be taken to be executed outside of Jerusalem's city walls. And certainly, the connection to all this is obvious, Certainly on one level, the crucifixion of Jesus is what this passage is about. However, the problem is that once we pick up on this connection to Jesus' crucifixion, it can become easy to assume that that's all this passage is about. And that because this parable refers to that historical event of what those particular religious leaders were about to do, that there's not actually much relevance for our lives today, 2,000 years later. Particularly if we haven't rejected Jesus, but have instead recognized him as the Messiah, as our Lord. But in reality... This is not a parable solely for those confronting Jesus on that day. No, it is most definitely a parable for us. And to help us understand why, and to be able to properly hear and receive its message, I want to actually turn our attention to the other passage we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 5. So if you don't have a bulletin, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bible. And as we go through this passage, I'll be drawing from the work of Old Testament scholar Alec Montier, 
who I've drawn from before. But what God has to say through Isaiah here in Isaiah 5 starts out as a love song for a vineyard. Isaiah writes, let me sing for my beloved, for God, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Beautiful. But the end of verse 2 says that after God had cared so well for his beloved vineyard, he was shocked to discover what sort of crop it had produced. Isaiah continues, and he looked for it, that is the vineyard, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, I think when we read wild grapes, that it may not sound so bad. Right? I mean, perhaps we think of wild fruit that's edible, like elderberries or mulberries or something that aren't like the greatest, but like they're fine. But this fails to capture the original Hebrew sense of what's going on here. Really, what is being said is that the Lord went to his vineyard and found the Hebrew word would be stink fruit, stinky fruit, nasty fruit. In other words, God came expecting all of his cultivations and care to have produced a crop that was suitable for making wine. But what he found was this stink fruit that wouldn't be fit for making anything drinkable. So God then asked rhetorically, what is he supposed to do? In verse 3, he says, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, you know, Isaiah's audience here, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield, wild, to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Well, the obvious response as to what should be done with a vineyard that isn't producing is not a single thing more, right? If he's done everything he can. Although the Lord plans to go even further than that. In verse 5, he says, And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll even command the clouds that they not rain upon it. Now, that may sound harsh, but honestly, anyone hearing this originally would have agreed in that kind of agricultural situation, that this response was deserved. I mean, maybe not the no rain thing, but... It's like the religious leader's response to Jesus' parable in our gospel today, right? When he asked, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They reply, perhaps a bit too gleefully, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them their fruits in season. I think these guys were watching a few too many gangster movies. That's exactly, though, how the people of Israel would have reacted to the first six verses of this Isaiah passage, believing the vineyard owner's response was appropriate, right? To give up. But in verse 7, Isaiah comes in with the kicker that vineyard is you, Jerusalem and Judah. He writes, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And the end of that verse 7 
includes two plays on words in the Hebrew that are really significant. So I'm going to draw them out. The word for justice there, the Hebrew mishpat, sounds very close to the word for bloodshed, mispah. And the word for righteousness, sedekah, sounds very similar to the word for outcry, se'ekah. So this is a clever poetic way of kind of communicating what had really happened. While God's people uh, presented themselves as faithful, upon further inspection, closer inspection, they weren't at all, right? And this is much like our gospel passage where Jesus' parable is directed at these religious leaders who's, who everybody would think of as the most faithful and yet it's a facade of faithfulness. They don't really want what God's about. Isaiah says the Lord came looking for the good fruit of justice, mishpat, but he found mishpah, bloodshed. The Lord came looking for righteousness, sedekah, but he found se'akah, outcry. Well, that's where the lectionary had our passage, our Isaiah passage ending today with the Lord lamenting that Israel was practicing the opposite of justice and righteousness. However, those are pretty broad words, justice and righteousness. They can mean all sorts of different things to all sorts of different people. So I think it's helpful to be clear or more precise of what, what we're really talking about here, what God's really talking about. And this is why I had us read through verse 25, because it provides more insight into the injustice and into the unrighteousness that God found his people practicing. The rest of our passage includes six woes listed by Isaiah. Now, as we review these woes briefly as we go through them, what I want you to think about are the many ways that these same sins Isaiah is going to describe continue to be a problem today. But not simply for a problem in our society at large. That's to be expected among godlessness. I mean among us. I want you to think about how these, the many ways these same sins continue to be rampant among Christians in the church today, including us. The first woe comes immediately in verse 8. The Lord says through Isaiah, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room. See, in Isaiah's day, land speculation was rampant, and the wealthiest were amassing land to build larger and larger estates. But this displeased the Lord because it misused the land for their benefit alone and caused a widening of disparity in the wealth between rich and poor. Right? And then the second woe is found in verse 11, which says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Now, you may think, may, may, perhaps you don't drink when you read this, but this is really about the sin of self-indulgence, whatever it is, whether it's alcohol or anything else. Basically, of a life lived only for pleasure, only to eat and drink and be merry, Right? The ecclesiastical life, we might say. 
Now, what's fascinating is that after these first two woes, in verse 13, Isaiah says, therefore, and he proceeds then to highlight how these sins actually end up bringing ruin upon those who succumb to them. He says in 13 that those who live for drink will actually end up parched, spiritually, of course. Right? They won't get from that lifestyle what they're looking for, spiritually. He says those who gobble up property will one day be brought low, Verse 17, that no man shall eat among the ruins of all they've amassed, they'd amassed. Okay, but then verse 18 continues with the third woe. Isaiah writes, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say of God, it says of him, of God it's talking about, let God be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Now, this describes a few things. First, it describes that people voluntarily practicing immorality, right? Unashamed, right? But not recognizing that in doing so, they are not living up to their dignity as human beings. They're living an animal existence, you might say. But then it describes, it's described a people who frankly refuse to trust in God who reject him when he doesn't do exactly what they want him to. They're saying, oh, we'll believe in you if you'll come do signs and wonders. You know, if you're really a real God, show us yourself. Yeah, I didn't think so. I hadn't seen you in a while. I'm going to go do my own thing. And related to this is woe number four in verse 20. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're seeing the relevance to today, right? These people have traded what God has said is right for their own taste and preferences, for whatever they feel like doing in their animal instincts, right? Operating out of their fears and their angers and their rage. And the fifth, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah's talking about a, an environment where there was no absolute truth that's respected, where confidence in authority, the Lord's authority, had crumbled. And rather, people were trusting, above all, in their own opinion and understanding. You know, like Facebook. Sorry, that was off script. Finally, verse 22 has woe six. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This was a society celebrating people for being skilled at vice and then allowing those same unvirtuous fools to be the administers of justice. You know that's a recipe for a disaster. And Isaiah continues in verse 23 with another therefore, another explanation of how these sins will bring about ruin for God's people. But summing, up, it, summing it up a bit, here Isaiah has described God's people as being captive to all sorts of sin, which will not only have consequences for them, but of course falls short of God's plan, his intention for them, for their lives. And yet, as we read this, it's difficult to deny that Christians in the church, in our society, we, 
have proven to be susceptible to almost every single one of these woes. If not specifically amassing property for ourselves, supporting policies that contribute to the increasing of, the, uh, of income disparity, of amassing pro- more property for the wealthy and whittling down the, less even, uh, the, the least of these even more. But not just that. The church has proven again and again we believers struggle to treat the principles of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as any more than a nice ideal, not something to really take seriously. Let's not turn our other cheek. Let's cut our enemy down. Seems to be more and more the way of things. Choosing certain sins from other tribes to scapegoat and amplify while minimizing and rationalizing our sins or the sins of the the figures or leaders of our tribe. Seeing nothing wrong at all with hating and denigrating our enemies, particularly politically, right? And there's the talk of the trusting in your own understanding. I mean, today, Christians more than anyone seem to be vulnerable, susceptible to conspiracy theories, But those discredit us to the outside world. We seem prone to frame inconvenient truths as hoaxes, all at the expense of the common good. And lastly, the the celebration of violence and crudeness in the church, particularly when it's presented as somehow manly, but looks nothing like Jesus. These characteristics have sadly become increasingly consonant with Christianity in America like stinking grapes. And so what I'd like to consider with the rest of my time today is what could possibly allow this to happen? How does this happen? How can religious people be so easily captive to such sin, have such blind spots just as much seemingly as the world around who doesn't know Jesus at all? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. I think the answer is the same as it was for God's people in Isaiah's day and for the religious leaders confronting Jesus' day. I think it's the same answer for us today. What is missing that could allow anyone in covenant with God to get so far off track and produce such rotten fruit and not even think a thing about it, what's missing is a commitment to earnest Self-examination, earnest self-examination. The woes of Isaiah 5 are the woes of an unexamined life. And this begs the question, of course, how committed are you and I to the practice of regular, honest self-examination? The book titled The Deeply Formed Life is by Rich Velotas, who shepherds the church previously pastored by Peter Scazzaro, the emotionally healthy spirituality guy. But in this book, Velotas has a few chapters on self-examination where he talks about the different obstacles 
that could lead believers today to ignore this, what is really a hallmark of Christian spirituality, self-examination. The way to think about self-examination, probably what's helpful would be the image of an iceberg, that our lives are like icebergs, where about 10% of what's going on for us is above the water, is visible, is apparent. But where about 90% is under the water and remains hidden, even from ourselves at times, unless we are intentional to take a look at what's underneath. That's what self-examination is. As St. Augustine wrote, O God, let me know myself. Let me know you. John Calvin, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. These two things go hand in hand. Well, Velotis explains that the primary obstacle to doing self-examination tends to be emotional. That is typically fear. Fear of what we may find if we look inward to take an honest measure of what's going on under our surface. And I get it, I do. I, I haven't been immune to that fear not at all. But to avoid self-examination on those grounds, when I have, it's been to choose fear over faith, right? Because the gospel promises us that whatever we find when we look inside, Jesus will be with us and God's grace will cover it. Nothing that we may discover in the darkness of our hearts could make us unacceptable to the Lord. So that's the, the biggest hindrance probably is fear. But Velotis also notes that there are some Christians today who consciously oppose the practice of self-examination because of the concern that it will lead to self-absorption, right? And this concern's actually legitimate because if self-examination becomes pra a practice sort of for its own sake, it can do just this. It can lead to self-absorption, to self-righteousness, to judgmentalness, especially toward those who don't know themselves as well as you do. Or even to self-hatred, right? If you, if you look inside and find some ugly stuff and don't end up at the throne of Jesus with it or receiving his grace, right? Therefore, it's important that we understand self-examination is not a practice for its own sake. Rather, it is a practice to come into the light with God where Jesus is, right? Jesus is there. The hard work of examination and repentance from whatever we find to be awry, that should lead to celebration of Christ's forgiveness and confidence that Jesus would not reveal something to us that he doesn't want to begin to transform. Like we said last week, he is gentle, right? He doesn't give it to us all at once. But how important is it to do this self-examination? Can't we just claim that we're forgiven and go on living like the rest of the world as many Christians do today and you know, put that Jesus fish on the car and be done with it? 
Well, only if we don't desire to live any more of the kingdom life than we're living right now. If you don't want any more of the kingdom, don't do self-examination. If you're completely fulfilled and connected with Jesus, right? You're, then this is for everybody else. <laughs> As American novelist James Baldwin observed, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed till it's faced. If we want to be living in the kingdom and not just living as cultural Christians who behave tribally like the rest of the world, just our tribe's Christianity, and we feel extra special righteous over it. If we want to move beyond that, our willingness to do self-examination is going to be critical, indispensable. You know, Jesus talks about the narrow road of following him, right? In the gospel, he talks about the narrow road that few take and the that leads to life and the wide road of destruction that most people take. And in the New Testament times and probably the first few centuries of church, that may have been a lot more simplistic looking, right? It may have been whether one accepts Jesus as the Messiah or not, right? Because to accept him as the Messiah, you had to give up a whole heck of a lot, and right? You had to really be pretty bought in to this thing. But the past 1,700 years with Christendom, with, with all these supposedly Christian societies in the West, the narrow road is no longer do I think of myself as a Christian, do I go to church? No, the narrow road has really become those who don't simply call themselves Christians or simply go to church, but those who daily and regularly seek to live in the light. That's the dividing line between the wide and narrow roads. Those who bring themselves in the exposure of God's life because that is the way to inherit the kingdom, life, and salvation that Jesus has meant to bring us. And on that note, I have to say, here at St. Matthias, I see an increasing number of parishioners who are becoming willing to do this. And I say that with great excitement, right? Who aren't just satisfied to sort of go through the motions and who have actually intentionally rejected this movement in the American church of tribal Christianity and culture wars, right? Who've, re who've rejected all that and have the faith and willingness to begin doing that interior work to control what they can control with God's spirit instead of just griping about stuff they can't control out there. That takes such, let me tell you, that takes such courage. And it can be difficult. But it is oh so fruitful. And yet even for those of us who've tried to practice regular self-examination, as we said last week, it's still so easy to fall off that path and to fall onto the path of spiritual complacency. And Velotus highlights the two main reasons why. He says the first hindrance is compartmentalization. Right. We talked a little bit about this last week. Compartmentalization refers to a, a kind of splitting of ourselves in which we offer some parts of our lives to God, but we deny him the rest. So for example, maybe we trust God to forgive us our sins, 
but we keep our politics roped off from him. Or perhaps we give financially, faithfully to the Lord as he's called us to, but, but we rope off our business decisions or, or how we spend the rest of our money from accountability to him. Or maybe we, we trust in God in certain relationships, except our relationship with a significant other where we conduct ourselves in a more worldly manner. Well, Veloda says to, to compartmentalize in this way is to be like a child hiding a broken figure from his mother for fear of judgment. Like a child hiding a broken figure from his mother for fear of judgment. But of course, it is to little avail, particularly with a God who sees all. So Velotas suggests that a spiritually mature approach instead is to begin seeking to acknowledge all of these parts of ourselves, including our fears, our wounds, so we can expose those to God's love and let him weave them into the new person he's making us into. And if you want to read more about that, I commend this book I'm talking about to you, The Deeply Formed Life. But Veloda says the other common hindrance to self-examination is busyness, busyness. Allowing ourselves to be swept away by a pace of life that simply makes the solitude and prayer necessary for inner reflection, makes that impossible. The question about that is, what fears cause us to allow life to become so full? Because it is rooted in fear, right? We've believed a lie somewhere in there if we are living the busy life. But Velotus warns of the bad fruit that inevitably comes from that. Just listen to this. He explains, he says, limited reflection, limited self-reflection usually leads to dangerous reaction, right? To just reacting to stuff around you. He says, when there's no space to process our inner worlds, we find ourselves mindlessly and instinctually reacting to the world around us. Let me tell you, as crazy as this world is right now, and I mean, it's, it feels like record levels at the moment. If we're just reacting, we're gonna be swept up in it, right? If we're just reacting in our animal, instinctual selves, we are not going to be contributing positively to the situation. We're not going to be helping it. That's for sure. And we can see this, these fruits, these bad stink fruits of, of uh, a lack of self-reflection in the religious leaders in our gospel passage. I mean, you ever wonder, like, how do these folks actually get to the point of crucifying Jesus Right? I mean, it's easy over 2,000 years later to be like, you know, man, these people are pretty bad. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, but like, they're people. They're people who have a complete lack of honest self-examination, reflection about what they're doing, about what, they're, what really drives them. Right? Despite all of their many religious practices, that's what contributes to them being so resistant to God's will, so afraid, right? 
and instead of following the Messiah to hanging him on a cross. In the case of these chief priests and elders, elders it's their lack of self-reflection that ultimately and eventually leads them to crucify Jesus. And yet when we fail to practice self-reflection and the repentance that's meant to follow from that, we become equally susceptible to rejecting the call of Christ in our lives. Perhaps we're still Christians and perhaps we may still pray or go to church, right? But we're gonna be extremely susceptible to, to missing what God wants for us and from us. And metaphorically, we're gonna crucify the Lord, right? By living into some or all of those woeful sins of Israel that Isaiah was lamenting. But this leads to a final question I want to consider briefly before I close. And that is the question of whether God gives up on anyone. Does God give up on anyone? I ask this because from our passage today about the, the people of Israel in Isaiah's day and the religious leaders in Jesus' day, it sure sounds like God is giving up on them. Jesus warns in verse 43 of the Matthew passage, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So if we're susceptible to imitating them, and we are, these religious leaders, if we continue to resist practicing earnest self-reflection, what's really at stake? Could the Lord give up on us? Well, no, no. I wouldn't say he gives up on us, in this life at least. Because the invitation for us to take up the examined life, it's always there. It's always there. Whether we've been avoiding it for decades, it's still right there for you today. So if we're balking at that invitation right now, it's not that the Lord gives up on us forever. But so long as we are resisting that inner work, frankly, there's just not much he's going to be able to do with us either. Not from a kingdom standpoint. So the door is always open, but he's going to look to use those who care more about bearing fruit for his kingdom than about maintaining the status quo of their own little kingdom. And so if we're serious, if we are desirous of bearing fruit, if we desire to be Christians, not just in name, but to reflect the character of Christ more and more, Jesus is inviting us to begin confronting and dismantling whatever obstacles are keeping us from living an, an examined life. Is that an invitation that you and I will accept today? In the name of the Father and the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Amen.